Hi guys, and a warm welcome to all the proud 21st century Earthlings tuning in today. This is the Fantasy Podcast, where we take a look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Is it too old? Is the cover too weird? Did you already see the movie? We'll find out. I am your host, Erica Brickley, and I am absolutely in love with books. My favorite part is the discovery, which is why I intentionally organize my shelves by color to make finding things an adventure. All the books we cover during this podcast are from my personal collection. The story inside the pages is only part of the joy I take in reading. Though plot and characters are important to me, I bought most of what's on my bookshelf based on the covers. I'm a total sucker for fantastic cover art. Whether it's beautiful or shoddy or just plain weird, book sales and used bookstores are my favorite places on the planet because vintage stuff is the best. You don't see the same bizarre covers at Barnes & Noble. Sci-fi and fantasy books for teenagers are a bit better. I remember the Animorphs books from the 90s because the story was cool, but the covers really sold it. Nowadays, I see series like Wereworld and get a blast of nostalgia for harebrained concepts that get the synapses firing. Reading can be a full sensory experience, even before you crack the cover open. Each episode of this podcast, we will be taking something off my shelf and summarizing it. I will also share my thoughts about the book and provide some information about the author who wrote it. Most of the works will be vintage, but I may choose some newer ones if they catch my fancy. We'll do this for a, on a four-episode rotation, though I may edit the format as we get going depending on what people like to hear. Day one will be a random enjoyable novel with a nice cover, a classic author, and a good old-fashioned adventure story in our favorite genres. Day two is Classics Day. We will take a look at a story that is particularly old, famous, or otherwise noteworthy. Worth noteworthy. This might include H.G. Wells, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, or Michael Ende. A lot of hardcore fantasy, science fiction, and horror readers will be familiar with these books, but plenty of people have only seen the movies. If I feel like it, I will add my own interpretations to the end of the episode. Uh, day three is when we choose something with a really weird cover. A lot of the times, <laughs> these books will be ones I've bought but never really thought I'd get around to reading, so we'll go on this journey together. I will always do my best to describe the covers to you if you aren't able to look them up for yourself. <clears throat> and day four is Children's Day. We will take a book at uh, take <laughs> take a book. We will take a look at stories that were written with young adults and children in mind, possibly doing full read readathons for the shorter ones. Uh, I will avoid the bigger classics like the Narnia Chronicles. Um, uh, just the same as I'm not going to be covering the Lord of the Rings trilogy because there's a pretty good chance that you'll have read those, that you might read those eventually. Uh, and that's really not what I'm trying to do here. Uh, instead, we'll enjoy some of the more obscure or outdated, outdated books on my shelf aimed at a younger audience. Uh, now that I've explained how the podcast will work, let's get into it. Before we get started, just a quick disclaimer. I am very new to the podcast recording sphere, uh, so I'm still learning to read aloud clearly, enunciate well, not stumble too badly, so just be patient with me. Also, for any parents out there, uh, please note that other than the children's episodes, I cannot guarantee that there won't be any profanity or uh, inappropriate subject matter that you might not want your kids to listen to. Uh, so please try to listen ahead to episodes before you share it with your kids to make sure that you're okay with the content, and otherwise, stay tuned for the kids' episodes. Thanks! This is the first episode, so we will cover whatever novel I feel like. 
I looked through my rainbow bookshelf and tried to pick a color, <laughs> but I ended up just pulling out books and looking at the covers. Uh, the shelf is arranged by color on, uh, of the spine. So today's book lives on the black shelf, uh, but the cover is actually a pretty array of blue and green. It is called Forest of the Night and was written by Marty Stussy in 1987. While I dislike the name because it sounds more like a bad horror movie title, the cover is quite beautiful and exciting. This is a Del Rey publication by Ballantine Books, and the cover was done by Barclay Shaw. You can find his work at barclayshaw.com. I have a couple other books he did covers for, including Eurydice and Voyage of the City of the Dead. Wait, Voyage to the City of the <laughs> Anyway, here is what Forest of the Night looks like. On a background of lush jungle greenery, a woman with long dark hair cowers on the ground while a bright orange feathered lion cat growls at her. I really like the emotion in her face as she holds up her hands in defense, and the big cat's eyes are very angry and intelligent, more human than cat-like. The blurb below the name says, She sat out alone to save the tigers, but in the alien winter wilderness, only the tigers could save her. Dot dot dot. I once heard someone say that it's terrible how publishers include summaries on the back of books. You should start reading without any spoilers and let the story unfold naturally. While I understand where they're coming from, not every book has a gorgeous cover to advocate for it, and having nothing but a name and an author doesn't really tell you whether you'd like it or not. Also, if you are vision impaired, the cover does you absolutely no good. That being said, I'm not going to read you the back of this book, or any book, because you're never going to read it anyway. Uh, Marty Stussy is the author of two science fiction books, Dreams of Dawn and Forest of the Night. I have both of them, and I really appreciate her take on the genre. In some ways, her work reminds me of Madeline L'Engle's A Wrinkle in Time series, though less surreal. Here's her bio. Marty Stussy hails from northern Minnesota, where she learned firsthand about cross-country bushwhacking, camping at 40 below, and skidding logs with a percher on. Never did it with a tiger watching, though. Her interest in the outdoors and natural science continues, but she also ranges in other directions as an ordained minister and scholar of ancient Near Eastern languages and literature. She and her husband Nick, a small-town family physician, now reside in the South, where Marty preaches occasionally, writes, and works full-time toward a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible. Her children, ages 2 and 4 when this book was completed, know how to cope with Mama's ambitions. They found the power switch on the computer surge protector. Ignore them too long, and the screen goes blank. Marty's current hobbies include bicycling, bread baking, volunteer ministry, and of course, the next book. How do I find time? I married a saint, and I don't dust baseboards. <laughs> Although Stussy did not go on to write any more science fiction, she has written several books about biblical topics related to that PhD she was working on. Uh, I'm very happy for her, but those are not in my area of study, so let's get on with the sci-fi book sh uh, summary, shall we? <laughs> Chapter 1 Hashti is a young woman working on a newly colonized frontier planet in the future. She is in charge of the horses they brought along to help with logging in the hopes of setting up an industry and exporting the wood off-planet. There are a lot of similarities between this world called New Lebanon and Earth, including the basic shapes of flora and fauna. However, a key difference is that the animals here are almost all covered in feathers. One day, Hashti is out in the forest training a team driver called, uh, named Gaylord, a handsome blonde man, when suddenly the horses are spooked by, someone, uh, by something and she's tossed to the ground, injuring her shoulder. 
They head back to camp so the doctor can look at her. It's late fall and muddy. Uh, however, Hashti realizes that she forgot her jacket, which was has her beacon in the pocket, uh, which will set off a distress signal if she leaves it too long. Uh, sending Gaylord along with the horses, she goes back for it. Don't trip on the tiger, he calls after her. As she puts her jacket on, Hashti sees movement and sees a feathered tiger crouching about 30 feet away. Weighing over 600 pounds, he is bright orange with black stripes with a white chest and a black face mask face. The black feathers around his eyes make them look extra golden yellow as he stares at her. Hashi tries to stay calm as the tiger inches toward her, trying to feel confident as an animal handler. Uh, hello there. Nice kitty, she says. For a few minutes, Hashi tries to say soothing things to the big cat, but is frozen in place trying to figure out what to do. It can't understand words like stay or go home. Should she throw something? Finally, she begins backing away as the tiger watches, only to trip and fall backwards. She covers her face, convinced she's going to die, but the tiger springs at her. Uh, he stops and examines her, tapping her shoulder with his huge paw. Hashti notices the cat has a fruity scent. He makes some song-like noises and licks her. In a panic, Hashti lashes out, shouting, No! The big cat pulls back, astonished, and Hashti hits him a second time when he comes forward again. For a second, it seems like he might attack, but instead walks off like a cat whose dignity has been bruised. Shocked by the encounter, Hashti runs back to camp. She finds Gaylord finishing up with the horses, and he can't believe what she has to say. Let's take a quick break here to talk uh, about Marty Stussy's two novels. Uh, she wrote Dreams of Dawn along with Forest of the Night, and they take place in the same universe. What I think is better described in Dreams of Dawn is the concept of the first in teams. That's first hyphen in, uh, though it was published a year later. They're an organization uh, broken up into teams that go to newly discovered planets and determine whether there is already intelligent life living there. Their purpose is first contact as well as environmental awareness. They take a pseudo-religious approach to the work, reminding their fellow humans that everything is connected and deserves respect. New colonies always have first-in teams with them, in addition to the teams that scout out the planet beforehand. However, because their work is seen as troublesome and gets in the way of production, colony residents rarely like them and don't always like listening to them, as was the case in Dreams of Dawn. Now, let's get back to Forest of the Night. Apparently, the first in team surveyed New Lebanon a year before the loggers touched down. They had made sure the tigers learned to stay away from the area where humans planned to camp, and figured out that tigers preferred to leave them alone anyway. So, a tiger coming up to a person and possibly attacking one is unheard of. Nevertheless, Gaylord can't believe a huge tiger just went away after being hit in the nose. Hashti is a little hurt that he doesn't take her story seriously as he leads her to the doctor. The human camp on New Lebanon is affectionately called Swamp City. <laughs> it is protected from winds by pine trees, has a hot spring in the center for water, and is located near a river called the Merry Water. A big open space acts as a landing pad for the biannual interstellar shuttle. There are wooden houses for everyone, including a smithy, chemist's lab, horse stable, office, store, and warehouse. Everything is overseen by the large city hall, which acts as a dining hall, church, theater, saloon, and courthouse. The most worn-looking building belongs to Dr. Anna from the first in-team that once held 12 people, but now only has her, her husband Ross the naturalist, and their colleague Big Red, who has become the de facto camp boss. Though older and weathered, 
from lots of time outdoors, Dr. Anna is lively and eager to help while Gaylord and Ross watch. Thinking she hallucinated, Gaylord tries to speak for her, but Hashti resents that, and Dr. Anna makes him stop and takes her patient to another room. She prescribes Hashti 10 days of wearing a sling, insisting she'll have to find someone to help with the horses during that time. Then she scolds Hashti for letting herself get so cold outside, quizzing her on the signs of hypothermia. Shivering, irrationality, clumsiness, and drowsiness. To avoid it, she needs to dress warmly, keep eating, and avoid exhaustion. Satisfied with her lucid mind, Dr. Anna asks Hashti what happened. Parts of the story are embarrassing because Hashti is a journeyman equestrian, nearly a master, but she let herself get injured so easily while training someone. Then again, the camp is poorly stocked for everything, and the doctor's equipment was mostly provided by First Inn, not by the old earth company that sent the loggers. They go back to talking about tigers, since Gaylord wouldn't stop babbling about them, and Hashti explains the encounter. Dr. Anna calls Ross because this is more his area of expertise. Ross asks her about a rabbit she saw around the same time as the tiger, and determines that it heard a certain tiger hunting song that put it on high alert. He says this is normal, but the tiger's behavior afterwards was not. He says the tiger may have startled her, but did not attack her because otherwise she'd be dead. They wonder if it was just curious. Hashti further describes the massive animal with the black mask, and Ross and Dr. Anna agree that it's a tiger they've nicknamed Khan they've seen around. Gaylord offers to shoot the creature, but the first inners say no. Guns rarely solve problems, Mr. Hess, Ross says. Hashti is surprised to learn Gaylord has a surname, which indicates wealth and status in the wider universe. Having grown up on the resort planet of Carolina, she has some experience with capital F families. Gaylord scowls and asks not to be called by that name. Dr. Anna wants Hashti to sleep. Now, uh, <laughs> Dr. Anna wants Hashti to sleep, not show Ross where the tiger was. She also recruits Ross and Gaylord to put the rest of the horses away when the loggers return. Ross puts on a, sk uh, a skunk gun before leaving in case he needs to scare off any big cats. When asked about it by Gaylord, he says, Let's not meddle more than we have to. A tiger that's been skunked doesn't come back, and he tells his friends not to come back either. This one just didn't get the word. Chapter 2 On New Lebanon, the local food is not good for humans. Dr. Anna makes sure everyone is up to date so their brains and livers aren't damaged. They get shots every week and take pills every day. Their food is also supplemented with a nutritious gravy with human-friendly proteins. Blech. After sleep and stress dreams, Hashi wakes up that night in the first inn cabin and overhears them talking about her. Ross confirmed that Khan the tiger has been snooping around. They discuss giving skunk guns to the lumberjacks, despite how nervous the men can be about local wildlife. Letting Anna and Ross know she's awake, Hashi goes with them to dinner, and they protect her from probing questions since stories of her adventure have been spread around. The first in team shares a table with the chemist, the lawyer, and the bookkeeper, who all work for the company that funds the operation. Next is the guild table, where Hashti sits with the other masters, and she gives up trying to explain that her bad shoulder is due to a tree, and not a tiger attack. They praised her bravery in the face of danger. She can hear Gaylord recounting her story again at another table. After dinner, Big Red makes an announcement, letting everyone know that the barn boss will be fine and a teenager named Lance will be her helper during her recovery. Then he tells them that every logging team will get a skunk gun, which sparks a debate about how to deal with the tigers, someone asking why they should use perfume instead of bullets. He makes it clear how effective the skunk guns are. 
After dessert, voluptuous lawyer Lael comes over to see how Hashti is doing. The text describes her as a fashionably plump blonde. Her concern is a cover-up for her attempts to find out more about Gaylord, who she seems to suspect comes from money. Master Tam the Carpenter defends her, letting Lael go, getting Lael to go away and give her some more pudding. Give, gives Hashti some more pudding, telling her to toughen up now that she's not working in a resort. She doesn't have to put up with people's attitudes. Lance checks in to see when she would be in the, uh, when he should be in the stable the next morning. Then everyone is distracted by a big idiot named Sweat get, setting off a skunk gun indoors. On her way into the stable, Hashti hears a haunting melody that sends chills up her spine and ends in a roar. Ross has imitated a song like that, but the real thing is beautiful and alien. She has to calm the horses down before going to bed. Hashti, I got him! I skunked your tiger! Gaylord says when he comes over the next morning, smelling terrible, interrupting Hashti and Lance's work. The teenager goes off to do something else, and Hashti blushes to think it's so obvious she likes when Gaylord comes to visit. She listens to him talk about how big the tiger really was, how much, he wi- she, how much he wishes he could shoot it and get its pelt. When his smell becomes too much, she sends him to her room to clean up, but he refuses. What will everyone think if he turns up smelling like the barn boss's soap? He leaves to tell Ross about the tiger. Everyone has a different reason for coming to New Lebanon. Gaylord seems to be trying to get away from his big family name, though he still has trouble with honorifics like Ms., Mr., and Master. Lance doesn't spell it out, but Hashti suspects he may have been a pickpocket on another world and needed to get away. Now he can put his energy into the horses. Unfortunately, this means that Lance, like most of the laborers, contracted with the Old Earth Company by agreeing to bad pay deals. Hashti is special in that she will earn her Guildmaster's rank and a nest egg, so long as the breeding program is successful and this whole logging venture is profitable. Everyone is gambling their futures on the planet's sweet sap wood. Unfortunately, all this means that there's an unpleasant there are, are unpleasant types like sweat around. He comes by with a message from Big Red, but makes a pass at Hashti before addressing her barely trained assistant Lance. She agrees to put together the sleigh team requested before sending him away. The encounter makes it clear that some people like Lance uh, see her as a gilder uh, with status and experience, while others see her only as a young girl. Later that night, Gaylord comes to tell her that after talking with Ross, it seems he skunked the wrong tiger. There were more of them around than before. Since he's still wearing a sling, uh, since Hashti's still wearing a sling, he helps her build a fire in her room, then lingers to ask questions about her past. She tells them about a picture she has of herself and Master Will, who she apprenticed with. It also features a horse she bred and trained, and was later sold to a vice president at the Old Earth Company, earning her this job. Hashti likes Gaylord. He's handsome, muscular, good with horses, speaks well, and isn't too pushy. They flirt for a while, and agree they'll spend more time together once Gaylord switches duties. Rumors will fly too quickly if they work side by side managing the horse and sleigh teams. So, the next morning, he speaks with Big Red about changing jobs. Ross tells Hashti that Gaylord will now be in charge of hunting. Making sure Makes sense, since people from wealthy families like to go shooting, and wants to have breakfast with her tomorrow in the forest. Chapter 3 Swamp City has two bathhouses. One is a big lean-to where the men go, and the other is a small sauna the women ask to be built for them. 
And by asked, I mean that the lawyer bribed a bunch of laborers with expensive liquor. The sauna is now shared by Lael the lawyer, Georgia the bookkeeper, Dr. Anna, and Hashti the horse master. Georgia was nice enough to help the injured woman wash her hair while Lael came to chat. Hashti left as soon as Lael started asking questions about Gaylord. She meets Gaylord for breakfast and he compliments her, saying she looks even nicer than usual after a bath. They walk through fresh snow holding hands, then roast sausages over a fire as a rare treat. After they're full, they talk about the state of things, and Hashti admits she prefers the laborers to capital F families. On her home planet, everyone knew not to fall in love with people like that because soon they'd leave and marry someone of their own pedigree. Gaylord is offended by her prejudice, and Hashti presses him to admit he's from one of those families. He takes evasive action, flirting with her, but she won't budge. So he admits his name is Gaylord Hess. His family is well-connected, he went to university, and he wanted to come here to prove himself on his own without people sneering at him, thinking he was given everything. He's here to learn the business from the ground up. Hashti thinks Gaylord is handsome no matter what his background is. She also thinks that he should use the connections he has to his advantage, but doesn't say that. Although Gaylord asks Hashti to take him seriously, she can't. It seems clear to her that he'll probably return to his rich life one day. That being said, there's nothing wrong with a little fun, and she lets him hold her hand. Gaylord has some insights into the state of the Old Earth Company's handling of New Lebanon. Though the camp lives off the land, rations are sent with the biannual ship, except they're a joke. Lard, cornstarch, vitamin pills. Apparently Hashti's horses are considered the backup protein source for the colonists. She didn't know that this operation was being handled so poorly that the reason they don't have good machinery is that the company is too cheap to send it. He is sure that this is a snare venture. The project will fizzle out, no one makes any money, and the guilders like Hashti will go into debt to the company, which can then send them anywhere they want for any job. It was all a trap. As long as the company doesn't do it often, the failure looks like a mistake and no one notices. On the bright side, Gaylord has the money to help Hashti should she need it. The camp is set up on a nice hot spring, the buildings went up fast, and the first in team chose to stay with them for a little while. Dr. Anna, Ross, and Big Red made it possible for the loggers to live as comfortably as they do through their extensive frontier knowledge. Focusing on the rising sun and their breakfast, they try to enjoy themselves. Gaylord goes to get some more wood to melt snow for tea, and Hashti sings to herself, thinking about her handsome gentleman friend. Suddenly, she hears a woofing sound. The text says, Like the noise she made trying to blow stray hair out of her eyes, or the greeting of two horses sniffing at each other. She turns to see the tiger named Khan with a black mask. The tiger walks toward her, and Hashti wonders if she can figure out how to use Gaylord's gun. Then again, the tiger wasn't charging her. Ross pointed out that if the tiger meant to kill her, it would be over fast, and he was just crawling forward, watching her. So, she tries to say soothing words and send him away, but this doesn't work. Khan gets so close that she can, quote, see the individual barbs of his feathers and the faint bluish tinge which copper-tinted blood gave his lips, unquote, while he sniffs at her. Khan sings to her, five notes that resemble a part of Twinkle Little Star. He repeats it, watching her, then starts playing with her tea mug, batting it around and even passing it to her. Nervously, she reached out and rolled the cup back to him, hoping not to get him too worked up. They end up playing for a while, sending it back and forth. Khan even smacks the cup out of her reach to make her chase it. He rolls onto his back and tosses the cup into her lap. 
Gaylord returns and is horrified. Get away from that beast, he cries, not able to use the skunk gun without hitting her. Hashi is annoyed by his terror, wishing he'd calm down. As a horse trainer, she knows how to stay calm, and his attitude is more irritating than the tiger's presence. When Khan growls, Hashti warns Gaylor to ease off. Instead, he points the skunk gun, and she gets up to stop him, so the shot goes off into the trees. This results in Khan pouncing and knocking him down, but the tiger runs off when Hashti shouts at him. While Gaylord scolds her, Hashti cries and vomits from the horrible smell of the skunk gun. She, is in, she in turn scolds him for escalating the situation. That was a full-grown tiger, not a pussycat, he says. This results in an exchange of insults, Gaylord calling her a silly bitch, and Hashti telling him he's acting like a spoiled rich brat. Fine, madame, make it on your own, horse trainer, he says. I hope your guild ring keeps you from, helps you next time a tiger jumps on you, because I'll be damned if I will. Fortunately, Gaylord accepts Hashti's offering of peace, but she wishes he would apologize for going after the tiger rather than for missing his shot with the skunk gun. He says he was scared to death when he saw the tiger so close to her. They make their way back to camp and are forced to stop and skunk a second tiger. This one is a smaller tigress with uh, buff and black colors and curly stripes. Gaylord recognizes her as Sabra from her retreating tracks. As a tracker, he can tell that Khan's tracks feature a mark from a claw on his rear paw that won't retract, and that Sabra has unusually long middle toes. This is very concerning because Ross told them that the skunked tigers wouldn't come back. It makes Gaylord doubt the naturalist. Back at camp, they report to Ross, who confirms everything, including the troubling news about repeat visits. Hashi is called to Big Red's office for an update. She is fascinated by the photos of him and the first in-team that feature inter- um, interesting alien species. Big Red asks how the horses are doing and if she'd be interested in training the local feathered horses, but she declines due to the impossible level of difficulty. They live on the plains hundreds of miles away, and their feathers wouldn't do well with harnesses. She reminds Big Red that Gaylord needs to be replaced now that he works for the cook as game catcher, and Big Red comments on how good the young man is as a leader. Just then, Sweat comes pounding on the door, saying he won't go into the forest again until the tigers have been shot. A tiger jumped on him from behind, and his skunk gun went off all over him instead of his target. But it didn't attack him. After pinning him down for a minute, it yodeled and pranced off. Big Red tries to make Sweat calm down, since the tiger clearly didn't do anything save have a little fun. But the man is insistent that he could have been killed. He gets especially angry when Hashti starts giggling, only leaving when Big Red makes him, saying he can work another job until he feels safe in the forest again. Over the next week, the tigers get more playful. Sabra jumped someone on Monday, then sang all night. A new tiger batted someone around on Tuesday. He pounced on another poor person the next day, and Sabra pushed someone into a snowdrift. The text says, No one was hurt. The tigers merely pounced and left. But men were frightened. As the weather gets colder, the logging should be getting faster, since the sleighs can be used. Instead, everything is slowing down. The worst comes a few days later when Hashi is called into the forest to help with an accident. One of the sleighs full of timber has been overturned, and one of the horses lays on it, laying on its side in the snow after a tiger spooked him. While Dr. Anna tends to the cold drivers, Hashi goes to Hiro, the horse lying down. She can see he has a spine injury and can't get up. There's nothing a backwater colony like theirs can do for something like this, 
So Dr. Anna gives the horse a sedative, and Hashi holds her head in his lap while she slits his throat. Chapter 4 After a hard cry, Hashi returns home to soak her blood-soaked clothes. She takes care of the remaining horses and takes down Hiro's nameplate. Lance comes around to help, letting her know that Big Red wants to see her. The lawyer, the bookkeeper, and the first inners are also there, and Hashti is the only guild representative present. They have gathered to find a solution to the tiger problem. Kill the tigers and be done with it, Lael says. Ross objects, certain the tigers' attacks will become real if they start to feel threatened. The tigers can't stomach humans or their alien food, so they would only seriously come after them if they sensed danger. He says he has been leaving bits of their food around for the tigers to taste, reject, and tell each other about to ensure they don't get too curious. Hashti is astonished at the idea of tigers sharing news, but Ross points out that even horses are best trained by pairing up with an experienced old steed who shows them the way. However, even if the tigers know they can't eat humans, they keep coming around to play with them. Hashti confirms this. Dr. Anna points out that the tigers can hurt people without trying to because they're so huge, and they're lucky only a horse has died. Hashi accepts this, though privately she liked Hero better than the human driver who survived. Lael again says the tigers should be the ones to die. Dead tigers tell no tales, Ross says. Then kill them in front of witnesses, Lael snaps back. Ross explains that there was an instance on a planet called Jelna 5 where fighting fish that behaved similarly to the new Lebanon tigers um, began attacking humans en masse after the initial killings. Colonists had speared the fish that were nuisances, and that brought down the whole school on them. And in Swamp, Kitty, Swamp, <laughs> in Swamp City's case, the tigers are well camouflaged in their na- native forest. The big question is, why are adult tigers playing like cubs? The only certain thing is that tigers are hard enough to deal with individually, let alone as big, angry, as a big, angry group. Also, there are only 12 guns to go around, and not many people trustworthy enough to hold them. They will have to stall until they can find a way to make the tigers leave them alone, or the laborers will get too upset. The tigers' playtime is interfering with the logging work, so it has to stop. Big Red decides that each logging team will have a skunk gun guard on hand, and they'll make the formula even smellier. Meanwhile, Lael and Georgia should use their influence with the men to keep their spirits high. Hashti will work on getting the horses accustomed to the tiger scent. Ross consents to killing just one tiger so that a skin can be used to keep around the horses to help them get used to it. Unfortunately, within a few days, the tigers figure out that the skunk gun carriers make the best pounce targets. Volunteers dwindle. Gaylord goes out hunting, but can't get a tiger for Hashti's horses. Morale is also low. Everyone's homesick, afraid, discouraged, worrying that they wouldn't have any, won't have anything to show for themselves when the shuttle arrives in May. And the weather is getting colder. Working through frostbite and frozen wash basins, the workers try to look forward to the New Year celebration. Then they got one. Gaylord's assistant Kevin is a good shot, and he brings down a 400-pound tigress. Hashi brings a horse and slay to haul it back when they hear another shot. Jealous and feeling disobeyed, Gaylord snaps at Kevin, who insists that the other one was coming after him. Ross is furious to learn what happened, though Gaylord just rolls his eyes. Meanwhile, Hashi feels sad looking at the dead tiger, no longer so graceful and powerful. 
its pelt is bedraggled from the trip back to camp, and the horses aren't happy to have the corpse in the barn. Later on, Gaylord and Kevin go to fetch the other tiger, but it's gone. There were paw prints everywhere among scattered bones and feathers. The tiger is eaten by the others. Ross tells them they were right to leave as soon as they saw that. Then they work together to skin the tigress. The meat inside is blue. Although New Lebanon is very similar to Earth, there are a few key differences that separate its creatures. In the grand scheme of things, copper blood's a negligible variation, Ross says. They also notice that the tiger has no teats. Instead, tigers feed their cubs via regurgitation. Ross is very unhappy, but Big Red calls a celebration to raise spirits. Hashti takes the opportunity to have a nice bath and relax. She wears her one nice outfit and a tiger's eye pendant, then joins Gaylord in the dining hall where the tiger pelt is being displayed. There is music and dancing and many uh, congratulations for Kevin the Tiger Hunter. Gaylord is a little jealous of the attention the other man is getting, but feels better having Hashti's attention. She goes to dance with Kevin, who is a great dancer from a planet appropriately named Atlantis, and has a great night. Eventually, Gaylord stops talking with Lyle and the others to join her on the floor. They stumble out into the cold air where the sounds of tiger songs echo. Kevin finds it eerie, while Gaylord just thinks of them as normal animal calls. They die when you shoot them, he says. Soon, Kevin announces he is going to bed, and Hashti takes Gaylord back to the stable. Chapter 5 Hashti oversleeps, only getting up when Lance comes looking for her. Gaylord has already gone, and she does the morning chores in frigid temperatures. While Lance takes a nap, she goes out to check on the teams. She finds out that the horses are still jumpy and can't be used for anything but the long hauls to and from camp. Although she suspects the horses have just figured out how to trick the humans into letting them do nothing. The loggers are actually worried about tiger attacks, afraid the horses will act as bait. A lot of these fears are stoked by Gaylord telling everyone about the attack on Kevin. Hashti is perturbed by the fact that Gaylord is spreading stories that make people nervous, especially if they make people distrust the horses. He's telling increasingly frightening versions of Kevin's attack story, even though he wasn't actually there to see it. Meanwhile, Sweat has been put to work uh, cleaning up manure since he won't go into the forest, and he's angry at her for handling the horses that make that manure. Here you had yourself a good time last night, Miss Hashti, Sweat says. Not good enough for Gay, though. He and his buddy been up there with Lael all morning. Hashti tries not to worry about rumors. She's happy when Ross comes to talk to her, and they sit in her room with a cup of tea. He and Anna have been dissecting the tigress Kevin shot, and have found some interesting things. Number one is the size of its brain. It's too large. He's evasive when Hashti asks if that makes the tigers very smart, instead going on to something else. Ross invites her to go tiger trailing with him. He's going to visit a place he found last year, where tigers, quote, put on a real show, strutting and jumping, twirling and bouncing, singing like demons the whole time, unquote. Afterward, they go off in pairs to mate. He thought this was their mating ritual, but the tig tigers continue to sing at other times, like uh, what the camp hears all night. Ross wants a second opinion from another animal handler. Also, Khan is watching her. He doesn't play with the other humans. He only stalks around the stable. He follows her when she goes to check on logging teams. Ross says he's sure Khan will follow them on their trip into the wilderness, but he shouldn't hurt them. And it's a risk they would have to take anyway. Ross is concerned about the fear going around camp, and they need to learn more about the tigers before it's too late. Kevin and the others are in, are in danger now that the tigers have been killed. 
With Gaylord getting everyone stirred up, there's no way to stop the loggers from attacking more tigers and inciting bloodshed on both sides. The first inner's influence won't make any difference now. Hashti is scared to seek out Khan and the other tigers, but she's also afraid of tigers attacking Gaylord. She agrees to go with Ross. You've got pluck, tiger wrestler, he says. <clears throat> Later that day, Gaylord tells her that Kevin can't stop talking about her since their exciting night of dancing. They flirt and reminisce about their night together, but he gets angry when he hears where Ross is taking her tomorrow. Apparently Ross tried to tell Gaylord about the tigress's big brain, and he wouldn't listen to any of it. Hashti likes Ross, and Gaylord's attitude angers her, and she points out that at least the naturalist doesn't spread scare stories. She then tries to drop the subject, but Gaylord keeps pressing, and doesn't like it when she says that she's tried to tell him things and he wouldn't listen. Gaylord then tries to dissuade her from bringing up rumors about first dinners sleeping around, which of course Hashti doesn't believe about Ross. Uh, she is, in turn tries to get him to open up about what he was doing with Lael, and he eventually explains that he and Kevin are trying to get a finder's claim on the tiger pelts. There was money in those, there's money in those pretty feathers. Early the next morning, Hashti goes to the first inn cabin for breakfast. She discovers Dr. Anna with a badly twisted ankle, which she got while they lugged the tiger carcass around. She assures Hashti, Hashti she's fine, then makes sure that Hashti's shoulder is good for skiing. As breakfast cooks, Ross explains uh, getting too little sleep due to staying up late dissecting the tigress. They explain to Hashti that the animal's brain is very sophisticated and capable of complex speech. Quote, not just, I'm hungry and you're cute, but real 24 carat speech, unquote. This is very unexpected because the tigers don't have fingers, tentacles, or prehensile toes for object manipulation that usually accompany speech. Hashti considers this while they eat breakfast. It seems crazy. Ross and Hashti make sure they have everything, including their beacons, and take off skiing after Anna makes the horse master review the stages of hypothermia. Shivery, irrationality, clumsiness, drowsiness. She and Ross also argue about whether Hashti might be well-suited for something, but Hashti doesn't really understand by, uh, what by the time they leave camp. Chapter 6 Ross and Hashti make good progress on their heavy skis on their way to the rock, a granite outthrust by a lake with a stone shelf protected from the wind on three sides by even higher rock. When Hashti asks, Ross says that the tigers don't live there, but he doesn't know where they live. By 10 o'clock, they are within sight of the rock. As they climb a hill on the way there, Ross shows Hashti how to tell if paw prints in the snow are new or old, how to tell different tigers apart, and other signs. They finally reach their goal around noon. Their beacons say that they are only five miles from camp. From their vantage point, they can see an unusual spotted tiger down below. Ross explains that more than 17 tigers have been here in the past year, but they never stay more than a week. Your friend Khan has stayed a month, he says. That's a record. Hashti asks more questions and learns that the tigers mate in midwinter, so the cubs are born around April, just in time for summer. Ross knows a lot, but there are still mysteries. He doesn't know how their territorial system works, which all animals have. Do their territories overlap? Do they guard them in groups? What is the significance of the rock as a mating place? The two have lunch and watch two tigresses arrive to mark the rock with their scent. Then Hashti sees them do something familiar. Woofing, she says, snorting in each other's faces. Khan did it to me, and even Sabra tried. I think that's how they say hello. 
Next, the tigresses relax and preen each other's feathers. Eventually, the male tiger joins the tigers, then roars and tosses his head. Moving to the center of the clearing, quote, he launched into a turning, twisting melody full of trills and grace notes. Although he never simply repeated himself, subtle echoes made themselves felt. Then the song broke in an ear-shattering snarl. The tiger flattened himself against the rock, only his tail twitching. He sprang, twisting in midair to bring down some invisible prey, then stood proudly, resuming his song." Unquote. The humans enjoy the hunting story, then leave once they notice the clouds rolling in. Before they go, Ross notices Khan's footprints nearby. Look at that left hind paw, he says. The rear paw leaves uh, smaller prints. Now look at his middle toe. See the point slanting off? Evidently he can't retract that claw. That's his trademark. Just before they leave, Khan comes out of the tree. Trees. He woofs at her. Since Hashti was looking the other way, she has to maneuver her skis to face the big cat, which he enjoys watching. Then she does her best impression of a woof. Making a please sound... Khan trots over, huge and beautiful. Feeling okay, Hashti stops Ross from going for the skunk gun, and Khan continues forward. Hashti gathers her courage, takes off her mittens, squats, and reaches out her hand. Khan stops and woofs. She woofs back. He sniffs her hand, then sings that Twinkle Little Star tune. Considering that uh, what Ross and Anna found during the dissection, Hashti does her best to repeat the sound. Immensely pleased, Khan rubs up against her, knocking her down. This surprises him as much as it does hurt, and he's gentler after that. <clears throat> Going off to find a, a seed pod, Khan rolls it to her and sings a little song. I swear to God, he just said catch, Ross mutters. Hashti agrees and repeats the tune before rolling the pod back. Khan sends it her way again, then Hashti instead rolls a snowball his way. It shatters under his paws, startling him, so he turns around and kicks snow at her. This play teaching goes on for nearly an hour. She learns words like catch, black pine, icicle, tiger, or maybe Khan's name, and sweet sap. Hashti guesses that Twinkle Little Star is Khan's name for her. More comfortable, the tiger switches from rubbing to gentle pouncing while being wary of Ross. Finally, as snow begins to fall, Khan takes her for a final tumble, then stalks off. Ross and Hashti ski towards home, but get caught in the blizzard and camp for the night. In their sleeping bags away from the howling wind, Ross wonders out loud what it is about the horse master that has caught Khan's attention. He also expresses confusion over Khan's ability to speak, since it goes against the hand-brain theory, which hypothesizes that an animal develops speech only after they begin working with their hands and tools. That doesn't explain how Khan could have language, let alone teach teach Hashti how to speak it. As they settle into sleep, Ross leaves a message for his wife using an altered beacon. He shows Hashti all the adjustments he made to it. Hashti likes him even more for being so handy, as she grew up hearing stories about first inners spending their money on alien voodoo. She admires the golden earring he wears that signifies his position. It means that he's part of the larger circle that would include entities other than humans. Ross tells her how he met Anna and joined her circle. Living with aliens is tough, he says. Crazy little things, like the way they eat their food or honor their dead, can bother you more than you'd ever imagine. That's why most planets are settled by only one intelligent species. And it's why folks are so nervous around first inners. 
They can't understand our tolerance for alien customs, let alone our participation. He also talks about Anna's work as an anatomical engineer and Big Red's career as an economic sociologist before asking Hashti how she began working with horses. She told him, tells him a little about her years of resort work on Carolina, her apprenticeship with Master Will, and how she took care, or <laughs> how she took a chance on New Lebanon. The conversation reminds her that the Old Earth Company might not have the colonists' best interest at heart. Chapter 7 Sleeping through the blizzard was hard, but Hashti wakes up to sunlight. And though the going is still hard, they have a clear sky to ski home under. They find Master Carpenter Tam su supervising the construction of the Phoenix Nest, a structure of dry, brittle wood a bit higher than an enormous table. When the time comes, everyone... Er, yeah, when the... When the <laughs> When the time comes, everyone will put their grievances on it and then set it alight, using the ensuing bonfire to cook their New Year's dinner roast. Hashti notes that the sol solstice is still two and a half weeks away, so Big Red must have organized this to help uh, give people hope. Sweat tries to heckle her, but Ross makes a joke out of it so she can go home and rest. After a day and night of caring for the plow teams, Lance is more exhausted than Hashti, so she sends him away while she cleans up the stables. Kevin and Gaylord find her there. They aren't really interested in her trip, only in the fact that she made it home despite going skiing with a crazy first dinner. Gaylord is happy to tell her that the Old Earth Company only purchased the rights to New Lebanon's lumber, not to anything else, so the colonists are free to export the tiger pelts. Thick, soft, exotic, he says. All we have to do is get it to the right market. We should be hunting tigers, not whittling at the forest while they snap at our necks. Hashti tells them they can't shoot the tigers because they're intelligent. The men listen to her story about Khan teaching her words, and Kevin becomes worried that he shot two intelligent creatures. Gaylord says they'll hold off on the hunting plan for now. They don't want any penalties for warring on intelligent races. Hashti is pleased with this, and Kevin leaves them alone. Don't trip on a tiger, Gaylord calls, then joins Hashti in the bedroom. A bit later, Hashti opens the door as Gaylord heads out to join his hunting companion. She notices something on the ground a ways from the stable. Screaming for Gaylord, she runs to Kevin and sees his head lying at an odd angle. There are intentional slices in his abdomen. A set of paw prints lead away down the road. Gaylord joins her and rocks the body in his arms, overcome with grief. The tigers like to play, do they? He murmurs. Kevin is placed on top of the phoenix nest, now a funeral beer. Everyone gathers for the ceremony, led by Big Red and Anna, though some people whisper that monster lovers shouldn't have the right. They recite the litany of dust. From dust are born the suns, the seas, and life. Dust we are, to dust we shall return. It swirls in hope and song, then swirls on. But dust does not forget the dream that stirs it. When they finish, Big Red turns to the group. Tell of this dream that stirred the dust, he cries. One by one, friends of Kevin tell stories about him. He made people feel better when they goofed. He suggested Lance for the stable job. Hashi says, he danced with me, and in her guilt, thinks for a moment that she said, he died for me. Everyone is sad that the young man had to die so far away from home. Gaylord sat vigil in the family's place. Everyone made, makes a circle around the beer and hold hands while the litany of dust is repeated. From dust are born the suns, the seas, and life. Dust we are, to dust we shall return. It swirls in hope and song, then swirls on. 
but dust does not forget the dream that stirs it. The fire is set, and Hashti returns to the stable to sob in one of the stalls. Ross comes calling. Hashti is distraught, sure that Kevin died because he went out alone so Gaylord could come stay with her. He died a terrible death for a small favor to her. Ross assures her that Gaylord may have been saved by that favor because Kevin was already a marked man. He killed two tigers and paid the price. He shouldn't have been allowed to hunt them at all. Now Hashti soothes Ross, since he feels responsible. He blames himself for not realizing sooner how intelligent the tigers are, for skunking them rather than studying them closely. Hashti reminds him that he put the pieces together before anyone else did. Then Ross tells her that while he stays in camp explaining to the frightened, angry loggers why they can't shoot any more tigers, Hashti will have to go out into the wilderness and make a connection with Khan. She's afraid to do the first dinner's job, but Ross tells her to forget all that. The tigers have more in common with her than the horses do, and she can bridge the gap. Just then they hear shouts from outside. Tiger! Sweat has gotten his hands on a gun and is aiming for Khan, who has arrived daringly at the edge of camp. The big man fires at the cat, barely missing. Ross calls to him, telling him to drop the gun, and Sweat turns in surprise. The gun is fired by mistake, and Ross is thrown down into the snow. Hashti runs to him and is quickly soaked in his blood. Sweat blubbers about it being an accident, but is quickly attacked by the black-masked tiger. He stops when Hashti cries out to him, then leaves when she throws snowballs at him. Khan is confused until he spots the approaching mob, and he runs. Anna is with the rest of the men, and Hashti gets out of the way, but not before hearing Ross whisper, Good luck, tiger wrestler. Chapter 8 Ross dies in Anna's arms. Hashti tries to comfort her while she keens in grief, and Sweat's broken arm is tied up. Big Red comes to carry the doctor away, while a sled is brought for Ross's body. For a while, Hashti can only pace in the stable, still wearing her bloody clothes. Lance tells her that Big Red wants to see her in the first inn cabin. She goes there, and Anna wants to know what happened. They already heard Sweat's version of events while the doctor assessed his broken ribs and arm. She tells the story, concluding with Khan coming over to see if she was alright. There are many accounts going around. Gaylord said the tiger attacked her. Big Red wants her to tell everyone at dinner that Khan was t- has taught her words, which prove the tigers are too intelligent to kill off. She's the only person anyone, especially Gaylord, might listen to. Another funeral beer is set up. Unfortunately, Hashti doesn't get the chance. As soon as dinner begins, Gaylord addresses Big Red and the room, insisting the camp must defend itself now that two men have been killed. He says they should start shooting. Hashti objects, but Sweat argues that he saved her by scaring the cat away. Gaylord takes over, stating that the first dinners never suspected the tigers were intelligent in the whole year since they arrived. He also explains that he checked into it, and intelligent species must have manipulative ability, i.e. hands of some sort, which the tigers do not. Hashti tries to explain that Ross knew that and was looking into it after dissecting the tigress. Gaylord says that's impossible, and Big Red tries to take authority using first-in rights, but Lael the lawyer points out that he can't do that without the full circle present. Everyone is eager to sell pelts instead of haul lumber. No one wants the cats to be intelligent. Gaylord tries to appeal to Hashti as an animal lover, and his lover, but ends up humiliating her. When she asks, Are you going to come in with guns blazing like a cheap novel? He replies, It will give your talking tiger something to discuss, dear. 
which gets a laugh from the, cl- the crowd. Staying calm, Hashi reminds Gaylord that Kevin was killed after he killed two tigers, and for a moment, he looks doubtful. But he digs his heels in. He doesn't believe that First In has any skin in the game because their salaries are set. They're not pulling their weight by setting traps or doing anything to help make up for the small number of guns. There's no way to trust that they, what they say about the dissected tigress either. With Big Red and Anna ruled out, Hashti tries again. Give me one week to talk to the tigers before you start shooting, she says. But this is denied due to the danger. She leaves, but Gaylord catches up to her, reiterating that the tiger pelts will save the camp. Hashti is so angry at him that she begins to cry. This in turn upsets Gaylord, and he grips her shoulders hard, telling her they're just animals. He wants her to stay with someone tonight so that she won't run off and be killed by, like Kevin was, or he wants her to let him stay in the stable, but she won't have it. He gets antsy because he needs to finish what he started in the dining hall. Finally, she agrees to stay with Anna in the first inn cabin, and he watches from the door until she gets there. The doctor is sitting vigil over Ross's body, but Hashti needs her help. Big Red is ousted as leader, and Gaylord has taken control. As Hashti explains that she needs camping gear so she can save Khan, Big Red arrives. He's sabotaged all the guns to buy them time. When he hears Hashti's plans, he wants to accompany her, but Anna says no. Red has to stay here because Gaylord will need help running things, even if he's backed by the laborers. Anna insists that even if Red plans to sit back and let Gaylord deal with all the problems, mice, holes, disputes, he has to stay there so the camp doesn't mobilize into one big hunting party. She can't go either because of her twisted ankle. Hashti decides to still go out into the forest alone, have, uh, since Khan prefers her, no matter what Anna and Big Red say. So, the first dinners help her get packed, including pills that will allow her to eat local food. Anna gives Hashti Ross's special beacon and tells her that once the tiger's intelligence is confirmed, First In can take control of the situation. If Hashti leaves without being seen, they might be able to get through to Gaylord before she gets back. Anna gives her a kiss on the forehead, and Hashti takes off on her skis. Chapter 9 New Lebanon has two moons. Hashti sees them on her way to the stable, where she gathers her clothes and struggles into her huge backpack. After saying goodbye to the horses, she takes off. For a while, she has a perfect hard snow to ski on. Then she leaves the logging roads for pure forest. She leaves camp without being detected, (laughs) detected, but the night still worries her. At one point, she's startled by a deer in the dark. It's a reminder that she's still afraid of Khan's untamable power. She feels watched the whole way. Hashti sees another pair of eyes, which she hopes are another deer, but they move as the tiger behind them runs at her. Stuck in her skis, she can't duck away. A deafening roar explodes from behind her, and she's showered with snow as another tiger leaps over her head, colliding with the attacker. Quote, the two animals hit head-on 20 feet away in a snarl of twisting shadows and flashing teeth. They rolled through the drifts, clawing and spitting, then separated and faced off, heavy tails lashing. Rapid singing echoed through the woods. Unquote. The protector is Khan. Hashti spots his black mask. After much fighting and arguing, the other tiger slinks away. When the danger is gone, Khan comes over to her and they woof in each other's faces. She wants to hug him, but doesn't until the tiger purrs and rubs the length of his body along her, singing her name. 
They begin traveling together using either Ross's beacon or Khan's sense of direction as a guide. He picks a clearer path than she could, which makes them faster. She wants them to get farther away from camp. Once they were there eight miles away, they stop, both of them panting. Hashti mimes sleeping, which Khan teaches her the word for, along with a purr of ascent. They go a bit further until he finds a comfortable cedar tree sheltered by a northern rock face. At dawn, Hashti looks towards Swamp City to see the funeral smoke and recites part of the litany of dust. To Khan, she says, Someone special died to save you. You better be worth it. As Khan makes a circle to sleep in and Hashti makes up the tent, the tiger is horrified when she removes her boots. She laughs, demonstrating what it is, and he tries to stick his own paw inside, to no avail. Then they sleep for a while. When she wakes up, Hashti is alone, so she uses the beacon to record the new word sleep. Then she tries calling the first in cabin. Anna picks up, hoarse from her mourning period, but relieved to hear from her. Hashti recounts the near attack from the night before, but she feels good where she is and doesn't want to head back. Anna reminds her to eat and take care of herself. In the meantime, there is a plan to keep Gaylord from finding out where the Horsemaster has gone. With Lance's help, there will always be an excuse for her absence. Hashti does as she's told and eats some candy and dried meat, then goes looking for firewood. She comes across Khan with a rabbit. He eats some of it, then indicates she should do the same. It is a gift to win her trust. After a while, she eats a raw glob to show her acceptance. Though, quote, the coppery-tasting blood seared her tongue, unquote. Khan cleans himself as Hashti makes a fire, which scares him badly. She says soothing things while getting the rabbit meat ready, cooking it, and eating it. The tiger calms down, despite his apprehension, and rumbles approvingly as she eats more. When Hashti shares the cooked food, Khan tries to eat it three times before burying it and going off to groom himself thoroughly. Quote, Hashti watched, suspended between indignation and hilarity. So this is what he thought of her food? They might have a wider cultural gap to surmount than she thought if he buried good roast rabbit like feces, unquote. They continue on, going another four miles. She learns words like beaver lodge and waterfall. Though Hashti is burning with questions about his people, she reminds herself she can't learn everything in a day. Meanwhile, Khan practices a long song. Quote, he introduced rhythmic variations, melodic rhymes, and grace notes. The song acquired a haunting weirdness, sounding more and more like the one the spotted tiger sang at the rock. Unquote. That night, when it was time to sleep, Khan added more words that she did not know and pushed her onwards until they came to a toppled black pine that made for good shelter. Lodge? Hashti asks, and Khan snarls in the negative, using a word like shelter instead. She wasn't sure why he was upset about the difference. They go back and forth about it while she makes her bed in the comfy space. Before going to bed, Hashti calls home and speaks to Big Red. So far, Gaylord has been too busy with everything to notice she's missing. When he asks about her vocabulary, Hashti says that the tigers refer to humans as hill beavers because of their log cabins, which Red finds amusing, along with the cooked rabbit story. Khan sleeps alongside her that night, protesting when she changes positions. Hashti wonders if tigers have fleas. Even if they can't handle human blood, the thought makes her itchy. Again, Khan is gone when she wakes up, but he returns with a dead deer, which she makes a fire for boil uh, while she makes a fire for boiling snow. He eats it, and the process disgusts her. He rips the feathers off of his kill, then slurps the intestines like spaghetti. 
It reminds her that Ross talked about this. Crazy little things, like the way they eat their food, can bother you more than you'd ever imagine. Chapter 10 Hashti quickly gets over Khan's disgusting eating habits. Nothing can stop her from partaking in the game he brings after hours of skiing. She works diligently to melt snow for enough water to stave off hypothermia. While Khan naps, she tries to wash her clothes in hot water and soap, which wakes him up. The tiger comes over singing, Little Star, from the Twinkle Little Star melody he uses to call her. After a while, Hashti figures out that this tune refers to the smell of her soap. So what does the twinkle part mean? Khan licks the soap, which tastes terrible, and goes off to nap. To entertain herself, Hashti carves a uh, toy horse. Again, Khan's attention is roused. She discovers that he can understand figures and drawings, identifying a horse, a log cabin, which he calls a hill beaver lodge, and a human. Though her vocal cords don't have the same range as his, she does her best to imitate him. Quote, His habit of decorating final notes with trills, quavers, and tremolos complicated Hashti's task. She thought these endings might differentiate a black pine from the black pine or black pines in general, but the variations were too numerous and complex for her to distinguish, let alone duplicate. She finally ignored them, supplying articles as needed in her translations, and omitting them from her own speech. Khan, for his part, seemed pleased that she could speak at all. One could not expect a beaver to pick up all the nuances in a day. Unquote. After growing up in, on a resort planet, Hashti is used to learning new languages, so she knows how to focus on the words she knows while guessing at the rest. For every one word she understood, there were a dozen she didn't. Still, she recorded them all and sent them to Anna, touching base with the first inners back at camp every day. She also figures out that tigers call themselves speakers, and Khan refers to himself as beaver teacher. This seems to relate to how he calls humans hill beavers. The name he's put together for her means something like soapy baby or flowery smelling cub. Listening to everything, Anna hypothesizes that Khan knows the word for horse, even though local ponies are too far away, because the big cats communicate with each other. Back at camp, Lance is doing a great job covering for Hashti, so Gaylord hasn't realized she's gone yet. Unfortunately, aside from that, the situation isn't looking good. The men are too scared to go out logging until they find something better than a skunk gun. But in the meantime, they've killed three tigers with poison bait. Though Hashti tries, she's not fluent enough to warn Khan about this. Khan takes her on a trip away from their comfortable shelter, singing as they go. When Hashti imitates the song, he is amused and asks her why she sings his... something. After some back and forth, Hashti puts together that Beaver Teacher is Khan's small name, or small speech, while the song he's been practicing is his big name, or big speech. They end up stopping completely so that he can repeat the whole thing slowly for her, and she finally translates this. Beaver Teacher is my small name. I spoke my big name. You too spoke my big name. Don't speak my big name. Speak your own big name. Hashti confirms with Khan that flowery-smelling cub or rose cub is her small name. Since the tigers call themselves speakers or namers, he expects her to become a speaker too. I am beaver teacher, he says. I will teach you to speak. Khan creates a big name for Hashti to learn, though it does not come easy. She has to memorize a long, challenging song and try to produce the formal flourishes in addition to the new vocabulary. 
Altogether, it's about five minutes long, and Hashti practices it as they travel. Khan composed the name within Hashti's limited vocal human Hashti's limited human vocal range. By noon, she has it half down. While Khan is pleased when she falters, <laughs> while Khan is pleased when she falters, he reminds himself that she is only a hill beaver. To which Hashti remarks in her own language, "I should make you memorize the Orion Treaty." They stop at a sunny rock, at which point Khan goes off to hunt. Hashti eats, sings, naps, and eventually gives up on waiting for her tiger companion to come back, and makes the return trip to the shelter on her own. Soon Khan arrives, butting her over and growling, angry that she came back to this place still like a hill beaver when she is supposed to be a speaker now. During the argument, he destroys the shelter with his huge paws, scaring her. This reminds her that she sometimes struggles to see him as a person, not a forest animal, just as he doesn't always see past her animalness of wanting a lodge. Something about lodges made her less than a tiger. As they leave, Khan tells her to leave behind her little lodge, and Hashti has to explain that she does not have his protective feathers to guard her from the cold. This explanation amuses him, and he accepts her hybrid nature, saying they are going to the speaking place. She's not sure what that means, only that it brings to mind the place Ross brought her when the tigers sang to each other. They arrive at a clearing against a rock face. Already, there's a big orange tigress and her two cubs, one of which looks ready to spring at Hashti. The tigress confronts Khan about the leaf eater, and for the first time, Hashti is able to hear him speak fast and freely after slowing down from for her from the beginning. Apparently, non-speakers are not allowed in the speaking places. But Khan proudly states that this hill beaver has a name to sing. The smaller tigress doesn't want to pick a fight, so she sits back down. As per custom, Khan splashes his scent on the big central tree and expects, expects Hashti to do the same. Rather than lower her pants, she takes out her soap, spits on it, and rubs the tree with that. And Khan confirms that her scent has been left successfully. Thus, the door is open for introductions as the family of tigers comes over. Hashti is presented as Rose Cub by Khan, aka Beaver Teacher. The tigress calls herself Tree Walker because she is better at it than other cats. She and Khan woof and rub bodies in proper greeting. Tree Walker's smaller second cub comes over to see Hashti. He has black crescents around his big eyes, and his paws are twisted inward, which makes him walk oddly. They go through the tiger greeting of woofing and rubbing, and she learns his name is Big Eyes. This gives his big sister the courage to push him aside to introduce herself as one who gets rabbits. The name has a very youthful connotation, resembling the way Khan would say "gotcha." Though the cub's bravado would suggest she's called herself "suave chaser of hares," Hashti has the impression it's more like bunny pouncer. Khan tells the cub to speak, and Hashti records while the cub sings her full name. She tells the story of her first hunt through childlike tunes and enthusiastic pantomime, acting out both herself and the rabbit. When the story is over, Hashti asks Khan why this is impressive enough to become a name. He replies that rabbits are fast and praises the cub. Bunny Pouncer and her mother purr with satisfaction. Then Khan asks the other cub if he has a name. Big Eyes is embarrassed, and his sister jumps in to say he is too slow to hunt. He insists that soon he will make a kill and be able to speak. Tree Walker changes the subject, wanting to know Beaver Teacher's full name. He happily jumps on a rock and launches into his carefully composed big name. It is much more beautiful, detailed, and nuanced than Bunny Pouncer's. 
Hashi wishes the beacon could record video along with sound, because Khan's acting is magnificent. He fights a tiger, he finds a lake shore retreat, he kills a fast horse. This last part surprises Hashi, because no tigers have killed the camp's horses, and the only ponies on New Lebanon are hundreds of miles away from here. She must have misheard. After 30 minutes, Khan moves on to the story of the hill beavers, everything from observing the horses to his first encounter with Hashti. He covers events like smelling a skunk gun, witnessing Ross's death, and camping with Rose Cub. To finish, he declares that the hill beaver has a name, and thus, he is beaver teacher. Treewalker wants to test this and demands the animal sing or die. After struggling onto the rock, Hashti sings the name Khan wrote for her. Quote, she forced herself not to think about stupid errors or simply forgetting her lines. Her voice grew stronger as the minutes passed. When she reached the end, she threw her arms wide and sang jubilantly, I call myself Rose Cub, companion of Beaver Teacher. Unquote. This is a good time to mention that the text is very good at indicating where Hashti does and does not recognize tiger words fully. So at the end of her big name, there's a space in parentheses that gives the options companion, pupil, and pet as options for what she is to con. She's not sure yet which is the most accurate translation. Treewalker is impressed, more with Khan than the speaking leaf eater. Khan is very satisfied with himself, and Hashti is invigorated by her new status as a speaker. Chapter 11 Early the next morning, Big Eyes goes off to hunt. His mother sees him off. May you return a speaker, she says. Once he's gone, leaving a trail of crooked paw marks, all the other tigers go off to hunt as well, leaving Hashti behind. While she relaxes, her beacon go goes off and she answers. Big Red is calling to make sure she's still alive after two men were killed and a third was mauled. Hashti asks after Gaylord, who is fine but struggling to keep the camp together as the men get restless. They're mad that good meat was used for poison traps and so on. Red asks if she wants, to, wants someone to come get her with a motor sled because a blizzard is coming, but Hashti says, wants to stay. She sends along all her recordings from the previous night's name sharing. Red is shocked that Khan says he killed a horse, but says it makes sense. He and Anna have determined that a second translation for the tiger's name for themselves might be those who do not lodge. Khan got upset about her campsite in the past because she stayed there too long. My guess would be they travel forever, Big Red says. They've got a pure information economy, or nearly so. No money, no warehouses or food. Of food. No fancy toys. No way to carry any of that. Instead, they trade in stories. Where they've been, what they've done. As money means power in our world, an impressive name with a capital N means power in theirs. They go on to discuss how the younger cub Big Eyes doesn't have a name because he hasn't overcome his first big ordeal, making a kill. Red warns Hashti not to get too attached to a cub who can't hunt. When the tigers return, Khan tells Hashti to pack up to leave because a storm is coming. He can tell even though the skies are clear. As they're heading out, Big Eyes returns unsuccessful. Hashti is sad to see how thin he is. Apparently tigresses stop feeding their cubs after a while to make sure they can survive on their own. Khan is not bothered by the natural order of things, so he says an eloquent goodbye to the family. Then he and Hashti set out to find a place to hunker down through the blizzard. Hashti dreams of Kevin and Big Eyes, of the tigers turning on her and the humans chasing her as a murderer, of Gaylord dragging her back. She wakes up when her beacon goes off. 
Anna tells her that the camp knows she's gone. Gaylord finally got past Lance's deception and got into a fist fight with Big Red when he figured out where she'd gone. Now Gaylord is on a motor sled coming to find her. When he gets close enough, he can ping her beacon for an exact location. Anna encourages Hashti to return with Gaylord if she wants to find uh, if she wants to. So it, it Anna encourages Hashti to return with Gaylord if she wants to, so as to avoid Khan's wrath as well as the blizzard. A couple hours later, the beacon goes off and she knows Gaylord is close. She tells Khan to stay away while she speaks with him. The tiger reluctantly agrees to stay behind. So, Hashti hikes in Gaylord's direction to meet him away from her travel companion. She spots him and the cook on the motor sled and waves them down. Although she tries to explain that she's safe and has shelter from the storm, that she can do her best work out here away from the camp where, they, where they're killing tigers, the men clearly think she's gone crazy. Gaylord plans to take her back whether she wants to or not. He's sure the tigers aren't any smarter than a house cat identifying a mouse versus a rat. Show me a centrally heated tiger den, Gay says. Let Get them to build a bridge across the merry water. Have one explain integral calculus to me. Hashti stands firm. She can't be the bridge between cultures if she's being carried home on a motor sled. So, Gaylord comes after her. As the storm blows in, she tries to run from the sled, and they struggle to keep up in terrain they're unfamiliar with. Hashti throws them her beacon and disappears into the storm. In the wind and snow, Hashti gets lost. She's got snow in her mittens. The temperature is dropping. Thinking back to Anna's instruction, instructions, she uses her emergency pack to wrap herself up and hunker down, but she has no warm bodies to help her, no dry clothes, and barely any hot water. She drinks from the self-heating heating bottle, but it burns her tongue and she spits it out. She puts snow in the bottle to cool it down. Then she pours the hot liquid into her boots to warm her feet. Rather than snuggle with the warm bottle, she sets it aside. She's feeling much better now, but now she needs protection from wandering tigers. Leaving her tarp shelter, she takes off her sweater to make a little scarecrow. This is delicate work, so she takes off her mittens. Khan arrives and watches her in shock. Get away from here, she says in her own language. You'll attract the bad guys. As Hashti lies down to sleep, Khan drags her away by the back of the neck. Fortunately, she still has enough layers that his teeth sink into them instead of her flesh. He shakes her when she fights back, and she allows him to take her away, falling unconscious. Chapter 12 Hashti wakes up in blinding, burning agony. After a lot of disorientation, she figures out that she is lying on her back in a warm pool inside a short cave. Tree Walker is nearby to make sure she drinks and doesn't roll over face first. She sleeps some more and is able to remember how irrational she had become when hypothermia set in after she ran away from Gaylord. Khan, Tree Walker, and the warm pool had saved her from herself. Quote, it seemed a mixed blessing. Her feet ached and itched from frostbite. She was weak. The pool which had saved her life had also soaked her clothes. Without dry garments, she'd relapse into hypothermia as soon as she left the cave, unquote. The best she could do is take her clothes off and wring them out. The tigers watch her curiously. Bunny Pouncer points out how thin she is, how she would have died without them. Hashi is embarrassed, but realistic about how true this is. Now her problem is that she is trapped in the warm pool until her clothes dry out, and she has no food or pills to help her digest it. As the blizzard rages outside, she and the cubs entertain themselves by talking. They like being better at speaking than she is, but they can also pick up on her language better than, than the adults can. 
Soon they have a bilingual mixed shorthand they can use together. Finally, Hashti lets Khan know she's hungry. He's annoyed by how often she eats, but Treewalker is more forgiving as a mother of ravenous cubs. cubs. The tigress then regurgitates chewed up meat for her to eat. Despite this gracious offer, Hashti retches in response, so Bunny Pouncer takes the chance to steal all the baby food. The tigers and cubs discuss why Rose Cub does not want cub food. Hashti re- regrets letting her call them that, letting them call her that. Big Eyes is intelligent and observant. He already figured out that Hashti is small because she is female. He thinks she can't eat the same food because she is a leaf eater. However, Big Eyes is not allowed to partake once Hashti gives up the rights to the baby food. She is disturbed by Tree Walker's fierce insistence that he not eat until he kills something himself. The next day, Hashti is able to put her clothes back on. She's starving and asks Khan to go with her to fetch her belongings, but she can barely stand. Big Eyes is concerned about her, while Bunny Pouncer thinks she is just silly. Hashti tries to explain to the tigers that she has no feathers. The little lodge she brings with her acts as her feathers. Khan is baffled by the idea of carrying a shelter of any kind, since it is something you discover, then leave behind. He says lodgeless ones, such as himself, only carry meat. Getting frustrated, Hashti insists that bringing her the little lodge, um, by doing so, he's also bringing her meat which is true since she needs the pills inside her pack. Finally, seeing how badly she's doing, Khan agrees. She watches him go and wonders if Gaylord survived the blizzard. Hashti is so relieved to see her pack again that she ignores the conversation around it. Having eaten, she tries to share some with Big Eyes, but Khan stops her angrily. He scolds her for a while, after which Big Eyes comes to explain he is alright. He will succeed one day and be a better singer than his sister. Perhaps I will call myself one who eats with Rose Cub, he says, thinking of the future, though Khan warns him that the hill beaver belongs to him. Tree Walker, ill at ease throughout the incident, smooths her cub's flank feathers. Kill soon, my son, or you will die, she says. Even Bunny Pouncer is quiet. When Tree Walker goes to sleep, Khan steps in his babysitter. He entertains the cubs by quizzing them on math. They start with counting, they move on to arithmetic, always working in increments of four that match the number of toes on their paws. Khan comes up with questions like, what's the angle between my front paws? Next, he has the cubs provide Rose Cub with directions to places using calculations she would have needed to draw and measure to work out. Big Eyes is especially good at this. Hashti is extremely impressed and remembers what Gaylord said about having a tiger explain integral integral calculus. Bunny Pouncer picks a fight with Khan over whether Hashti is a speaker or a leaf eater, and he bouts her around in the snow for a while. Afterwards, the playful cub concedes that Rose Cub may be a speaker, but she's still a hill beaver. Meanwhile, Hashti has a much friendlier relationship with Big Eyes. After three days in the cave, the storm ends, though the cold did not. The tiger family goes out to hunt, including Big Eyes, while Hashti has Khan take her to the place where she'd nearly died. Her things are gone, but she sees signs that the motor sled um, came through and an orange marker. She concludes Gaylord must think she's dead after seeing her stuff strewn about and tiger tracks. Otherwise, he would have left her things there for her. Fortunately, he didn't find her little nest where the rest of her belongings are. As she packs up, Hashti thinks about the situation. Even though Big Red and Anna knew she wanted to stay with the tigers, Gaylord's message about her death would make them think she was dead too. The only way to make their point about the tiger's intelligence now was to go back to camp. 
However, lost in the wilderness without her beacon, she is reliant on the tigers to get back. Big Eyes is still trying to make a kill. Tree Walker drills him on what to do, eager for him to succeed. It makes Hashti angry and sad that a mother would let her son die of hunger when he has so, he's so intelligent and sensitive. Even Big Eyes does not question the fact that his twisted paws are his responsibility to overcome. This gets her wondering about why she is allowed to say, I call myself Rose Cub, rather than I am called, since tigers gain the right to call them to name themselves only after making a kill. Khan decides they will stay with the family for a while, and Hashti decides they will go uh, they will do that for one week before she asks Khan to take her home. Then the adult tigers go off to hunt, except for Big Eyes. He comes to Hashti and asks her to be part of his plan. Bunny Pouncer says he might as well bring a rabbit with him, but he ignores her. His explanation comes with some mistakes on Hashti's part. She thinks he said, stick your head in the snow, when he actually said, beware of deep snow. <laughs> and they work it out. As per Big Eyes' idea, Hashti scares a herd of deer, and he uses their confusion to take one down. They are both clumsy, and the cub is cut by the deer's hooves, but he succeeds in killing it. He roars in triumph. The adults tell him to speak his name, and he pronounces himself, He who hunts with Rose Cub. This horrifies the tigers, and Hashti learns that, quote, The life-earning kill must be made unassisted, unquote. Big Eyes sticks by his actions and Rose Cub. She may be a speaker, but she is not a lodgeless one, and therefore he did not break the rules by having her assist him. Eventually, they determine that Rose Cub, despite her ability to speak, is exempt from anything to do with the ordeal, marking a tiger's transition to speaker. She did not break any rules, nor did Big Eyes. Bunny Pouncer is relieved her brother will not be punished. The young tiger is allowed to call himself He Who Hunts With Rose Cub, and Hashti replies, My name shall sing of He Who Hunts With Rose Cub. Chapter 13 Big Eyes is now a proper cub again, free to eat and learn and play without fear. Hashti plays with the cub and finds that she has one talent they don't. She can throw things. Sadly, it's only good for games. She can't catch any food and is re reliant on the tigers sharing it with her. A week later, they go into shelter again for another storm. Tree Walker and Khan sing the names of heroic tigers from long ago. Hashti's listening comprehension is good, enough for her to appreciate these epic sagas. Quote, One fairy tale told of a tiger who ate stars. He went to live in the sky, where he fed on the tiny lights to his heart's content, but they weren't filling enough. He wasted he wasted away until only his eyes, New Lebanon's two moons, remained, blinking slowly at the world. Another legend concerned a tiger who followed the sun around the planet. They knew the world was round, but could never quite catch it. Finally, he turned and went the other way, hiding behind a mountain and ambushing the sun as it rose above the peak. The sun pleaded for mercy. The tiger let it go, but ever after, the sun wobbled in its orbit, coming up at a slightly different place on the horizon every day to avoid ambush." Unquote. Despite these fantastical stories, the tigers know about solar eclipses and simply enjoy embellishing the truth. Another story that inspired Big Eye's own hunt tells of a dozen tigers surrounding a herd of horses. When Hashti asks, Khan explains that horses are easier to kill using a big hunting party on the open plains, while deer live in the crowded forest. Big Eyes points out that Hashti should know that hunting with a partner is easier, since she had others with her during her own kill. Through this conversation, Hashti realizes that part of her own name chronicles the death of her horse, Hero, with the broken spine. 
Khan has to repeat the name he composed for her without all of the flourishes for her to fully understand. He was watching her the day it happened. He had interpreted it as a successful hunt, not a mercy kill. Other stories tell the origin of speaking places, which always have a big rock as a stage. Tigers see themselves as the superior creatures because they live a long time, travel far, and are smart enough to remember all of it to sing in their names, capital N, later. When Bunny Pouncer says that hill beavers are like those other animals inferior to speakers, Treewalker corrects her, but doesn't have a reason. She asks Hashti where the hill beavers came from, since they aren't in any of the stories. Explaining that she was born beyond the stars is challenging. It sounds crazy. This is the, re- uh, the reason for their lodges, which have air and fires to fight the cold of space. She also tries to explain how rockets work. There is a very large rock with a cave in it, she says, where we make our lodges. When the fire burns under the great rock, it flies. Khan is a little more accepting since he's seen technology, though it's still unbelievable. In fact, he has even witnessed the biannual rocket touching down, so he vouches for Rose Cub's explanations. This gets Khan thinking. If he, too, could enter the burning rock, he could travel amongst the stars. The cubs also get excited about going, but Khan says, I, Beaver Teacher, will go. Hashti must now redo her name, using her true history as well as her improved vocabulary. Everyone is excited about this because she can be treated as a cub who needs help composing their name. The chatter in the cave is deafening. Before long, she has a new, beautiful name that starts with descriptions of her home planet. She uses the word pounce to describe working with horses because it means she can encounter prey without killing it, a prestigious and dangerous feat. Khan helps her with the part about space travel because even though he can calculate the distance, other tigers would think she was telling a fairy tale. Next, she sings about her time with the tigers, learning about them and helping a cub to hunt, emphasizing that she is exempt from the rules about the first kill ordeal. Just as challenging as the name is the accompanying pantomime. The cave is too small for practice, so Hashti thinks hard about what she'll do. She will use everything she has learned from the tigers, as well as pull out her lighter for a greater effect. Two days later, the storm lets up and they all head to the famous speaking place to celebrate Big Eye's kill and Hashti's new name. They arrive and do their marking ritual. They are joined by a tiger Hashti recognizes as being called Sabra from, uh, by the first inners, though she calls herself Moon Chaser. She's very beautiful and interested in Khan, more so than the presence of a hill beaver. She boasts about the four out of five cubs she's birthed who passed their ordeal and says she is ready for more. Khan doesn't bother to hide his delight. As she watches, Hashti is a bit sickened by the overtly sexual conversation. Bunny Pouncer comes over to comment on the display, saying she won't go into heat herself for another five years, at which point she'll have a name worthy, hopefully, of a handsome tiger like Beaver Teacher. It's hard to listen to this when Hashti begins worrying that she'll be abandoned by Khan in favor of Moonchaser. To distract herself, she goes to Treewalker and Big Eyes to scratch the tigress's ears. What troubles you, Rose Cub? Treewalker asks. Are you too in heat? Hashti isn't sure how to respond at first, then asks how mating works. Apparently Khan will be off with Moonchaser for up to eight days. Hashti asks if Treewalker will take her home during that time. And the tigress is agree- uh, agreeable because Big Eyes would like it, but worries that Beaver Teacher would be angry. If he permits it, she will do it. The cubs are very excited. Just then, an enormous male tiger with a ring pattern arrives. 
It's the same one Hashti saw when she went out into the forest with Ross. He calls himself Killer when the adults give their introductions, and he scoffs at Khan's name of Beaver Teacher, boasting that he has personally killed four of the hill beavers. In Hashti's defense, Big Eyes steps forward to introduce himself as he who hunts with Rose Cub. This draws attention to the human, and Killer is not happy she's there. Leaf eaters may not enter a speaking place, he growls, but she manages to introduce herself as Rose Cub and a speaker with pride. This startles him, but he refuses to rub noses in greeting. Despite the old tiger's unpleasantness, Sabra slash Moonchaser places herself between the two males, saying, I am in heat. Let us speak. Have you names? To begin, she sings her own, emphasizing her talents as a swimmer. She asks who will father her next cubs so that she may teach them to swim. When the males face off, Sabra chooses Khan to go first. This helps improve Hashti's opinion of the tigress. So, while Killer rudely looks off into the roods, uh, <laughs> into the woods, Khan sings an incredible story about himself that Hashti is entranced by. Quote, his artistry had impressed her when she had barely known the language, unquote. Now she can tell just how awesome it is. Quote, high adventure alternated with blissful repose. Unabashed romanticism was leavened by wry commentary, unquote. She laughs at his silly descriptions of the hill beavers and is moved by his recollection of discovering that, quote, within the beaver cub's awkward body lived a soul that could sing, unquote. He ends with, Thus I call myself Beaver Teacher, for I taught Rose Cub to speak. I will father cubs with tongues like quick running water. Quote, Your name is boring, Killer spat. It was the second worst insult a tiger could offer. Unquote. Sabra ignores him, having enjoyed the name very much. She agrees that Khan would father wonderful cubs, but she also wants to hear the spotted one speak his name. When Hashti heard Killer's name before, she didn't know what she was hearing. So this time she understands that it is the story of a grand old man of the forest. His name is less artful than Khan's, more straightforward, using only simple rhymes. It's all about the raw power. Quote, this tiger never pounced, he only killed. Unquote. This had included two mating rivals, as well as heel beavers. Hashti is horrified to learn that Killer sought out Kevin after hearing about the dead tigresses he'd shot, starting the cycle of revenge between the two sides. Other than that, he finds the hill beavers to be easy prey, not worth singing about. I call myself Killer, he finishes. The cubs I father will never hunger. They will be strong and fast, killers like me. Sopper takes her time, stating that Killer is probably superior to Khan in all ways physically, but that can be true of leaf eaters as well as speakers. So she chooses Beaver Teacher, since his name will be remembered. Angered, Killer says, Your name is a fairy tale. This is the worst insult a tiger can give. Khan is furious, but does not attack. Instead, he calls Hashti to speak. She is terrified, but steps forward. However, Killer roars that no leaf eaters speak here and springs at her. Khan tackles the bigger tiger while Big Eyes comes to stand with Hashti. In the struggle, Killer goes for Hashti again, but the cub gets in his way and the big cat tosses him aside. Khan is a poet, but also a fighter as he protects his human companion. He's already drawn blood from the older tiger. So, Killer turns away and goes after Big Eyes, only to be rebuffed by his fierce mother Treewalker, who chases him into the forest. While Sabra and Khan come together, Hashti and Bunny Pouncer go to Big Eyes. The intelligent little cub is dead, his neck snapped. It is a horrible sight in the starlight. 
Treewalker returns and cuddles the body in her grief. Khan takes a moment out of his mating dance with Sabra to express his sympathy, before allowing himself to be led away. Hashti sobs over Big Eye's death, disgusted first by Khan and Sabra's attitude, then by Treewalker as the mother begins to eat the body. Worst of all, she is expected to partake, since she was important to him. Hashti is fed up with all of them and leaves for home. Chapter 14 Hashti travels through the forest on her skis, thinking about how she is going to convince the frightened humans that the tigers are intelligent people. Quote, Hashti's people must swallow their pride, play on their weaknesses. Unquote. The tigers needed to stop pouncing on humans as a game, and the humans needed to stop shooting. There was a good chance that the tigers would win the long game if this continued. Killer had said it himself how soft and easy Kevin had been to kill, how meaningless he was as prey. All tigers must be convinced that humans simply weren't hunting at all. That information should be broadcasted. If it was so easy that it couldn't be added to their names, they might not bother. Gaylord would hate this approach, Hashti knew, but first she had to get back. Once Treewalker finished her horrible funeral rites, she would come help with directions. However, Bunny Pouncer and Treewalker found Hashti just minutes later, confronting her about why she wouldn't join them in eating big eyes. They are angry at her for not doing it, just as she is angry at them for doing it. Her mood is further soured by Khan and Sabra's harmonized duet in the distance. She doesn't care that tigers eat their dead so that they aren't picked off by scavengers. It's disgusting. Treewalker demands Rose Cub eat because the cub died defending her. Your name is so small, one cannot hear it, the tigress says insultingly. Hashti begins to understand, but can't bring herself to comply with the demand to eat. After a minute, she wonders if she can honor Big Eyes with her own customs. Treewalker is put off by the idea of fire at first, but accepts Hashti, Hashti's suggestion out of respect for her dead cub who loved her. Hashti makes a fire and burns Big Eyes' intestines, reciting the litany of dust. See the smoke? she asks Treewalker. It rises to the stars. It sings the name of he who hunts with Rose Cub. Big Eyes will be happy, the tigress says. Now they must hurry back to Swamp City. Killer made it clear that news about the hill beavers has traveled, and others will go there to enjoy the sport of killing them. Treewalker agrees to go there so that Hashti can be with her people and mourn the dead. Khan and Sabra are called for the update, but he won't come with them. He, still, he will stay with Sabra to mate, then find Hashti afterwards. She fights back angry, anger, and loneliness. <clears throat> as they travel, Hashti thinks about how to approach the tigers as equals. She feels guilty for not being able to partake in Big Eye's funeral rites as she should. If, she was going, if she's going to convince others that the relationship could be mutually rewarding, Hashti needs to think of them as people with beautiful language, wit, artistic sense, a rich heritage, and possible contributions to math and philosophy. She appreciates them for being so self-sufficient and smart, as compared to her reliance on technology. Did the universe have anything to offer such magnificent creatures? They didn't need weapons or tools or anything. The only thing was space travel. Hashti tests this idea with Bunny Pouncer, telling her that she can travel the stars, but must put up with sleeping amongst hill beavers who are not allowed to be pounced on. The cub agrees not to pounce and to call them, or to call them leaf eaters. This confirms that the dangling carrot of extreme travel and adventure could be the one thing to tempt tigers into communicating with humans as something besides prey. Now it could be made profitable so the humans were interested. 
Once the tigers were identified as intelligent beings, the old Earth company would lose its rights to the planet, and First In would take over. The one advantage the resident humans had was Swamp City, a place for First Inners to live upon their arrival. They could either buy the city from the loggers or hire them to build a better one in a nicer climate. For two days, Hashti daydreamed about the possibilities. Then the traveling party encountered many other speakers near Swamp City. Treewalker went ahead to talk to them. Hashti has gotten much stronger, much better at putting on her heavy backpack, and follows Bunny Pouncer around this gathering out of sight. The cub leads her out of the forest onto the human roads around Swamp City, which are totally deserted. They find the camp completely surrounded by a 15-foot fence, workers, and lookouts. Hashti and Bunny Pouncer say farewell, then Hashti strips off most of her weight and makes a mad dash towards home. However, Killer has discovered them and makes chase. Fortunately, he wanted to make a game of it, so Hashti has a head start on her skis while he struggles in the deep snow. He catches up and gets one of her poles, but she lets it go and crouches as she zooms downhill. Killer falls behind as the lookouts spot her. Up ahead, three other tigers run out of the forest. Much to her relief, one of them has a black mask, Khan. He urges her on. She scrapes through as Khan collides with the other tigers. Hashti makes it to the fence, but not the gate. Khan fights two tigers off as blue blood splatters on the snow. They run off, but his shoulder is badly injured. Killer continues to plow through the drifts toward them. Lance throws a rope over the fence for her, but Hashti chooses to go back to Khan as Killer approaches, throwing insults. The people beg her to come back, and Khan weakly tells her to do the same, but she stays because she knows she's not strong enough, knows he's not strong enough to fight Killer right now. Remembering a special fanfare of triumph and power, Hashti sings as loud as she can for the gathered tigers. This surprises all of them. It confirms that Treewalker told them the truth. When Killer tries to intimidate her, Hashti doubles down. Beaver teacher taught me to speak, so I will sing. You call yourself Killer. What kill you? Hill beavers, cubs, those who cannot fight. My brothers watch. Shall I tell them this is how lodgeless ones magnify their names? Shall I tell them that you are cub killers? Killer makes to attack, but another tiger stops him. Treat Walker told us of you, he says. Rose Cub sang the fanfare over Beaver Teacher. If you fight him, I will sing it as far down as the great ice and as far up as the sea of blood. Your name will shrink beyond hearing. With a few nasty remarks about beaver lovers, Killer retreats. Hashti tells the tigers to go tell Tree Walker she survived while she takes Beaver Teacher to the Hill Beaver Lodge. She and Khan go to the fence, where everyone can only stare at her until she demands someone bring her the doctor. Lance finally does. Chapter 15 While a dozen tigers meet at the edge of the forest, Hashti and Khan stand between worlds. Big Red and Gaylord meet them at the gate, while everyone else keeps their distance. Having listened to all the recordings, Red is able to introduce himself as Big Beaver to the tiger. It surprises Hashti as much as it does Khan. As the cat and big man rub faces, Gaylord takes his chance to greet her, but Hashti doesn't want to deal with him yet. Dr. Anna looks old and tired, but still intense. She bravely comes forward while the others cower before the tiger. Less of a singer, she introduces herself using a wooden flute, calling herself She Who Makes Well. A little overwhelmed, Khan allows her to examine him, and Anna says he will heal up just fine. 
So he's brought to the stable to rest, away from the center of town where he'll make people nervous. For the first time in two weeks, Hashti goes into a building. Lance has done a good job taking care of everything, but she is saddened to learn that the men killed and ate two of the horses while they were unable to hunt. She and Anna get Khan stitched up before they leave him to sleep. After a nap, he wants to hear the names, capital N, of Big Beaver and She Who Makes Well. Big Red asks Hashti to come to his office for a war meeting after her bath, but she refuses, saying that it will have to happen in the barn with Khan present. So, they all squeeze into the stable's tack room. Hashti, Big Red, Dr. Anna, Gaylord, Georgia the bookkeeper, and Lael the lawyer, along with Khan. The tiger is fascinated by how big Big Red is, and dislikes Gay immensely. Hashti uses this to her advantage to keep Gaylord in line. The conversation starts with a summary of how things have gone in camp. Gaylord hasn't had an easy time as leader. After he and the cook got back from trying to get Hashti, they discovered two more men had died, one from a tiger attack and one from accidental poisoning. Then the blizzard had kept everyone cooped up, tensions running high, and a fight broke out. Gaylord had ended it, but hadn't gained any friends in the process. He had to ask Big Big Red for help. They started building the fence to give the men something to do. It was impossible for Big Red and Anna to talk with the tigers once the conflict really got going, and she had to wait for her ankle to heal before going out on her own. Now it's Hashti's turn. Gaylord is especially anxious to hear, since he he thought he'd seen evidence of her being dragged off and eaten. Hashti explains this event, making it clear that Khan saved her. It's a good thing that tiger likes you, Anna says. Why? Lael asks. I mean, why Hashti? He heard her sing, Gay replies. She was always singing to the horses. He thought she was a cub, Big Red says. Children learn faster. Wasn't it her soap? Georgia asks. I think it was the horses, Hashti says. The tigers couldn't believe my pouncing ability. Rather than speculate, Anna asks Khan using her flute. He replies that it was all of the above but also her spunk. She made him curious when she punched him in the nose. Now Hashti tells the full tale of her adventures with Khan and the Tiger family. When the topic of math comes up, Gaylord and Lael are especially quiet. The first inners weigh in on the Tiger's use of angles and spatial understanding as what makes it possible for them to travel as much as they do, trading stories as a way to avoid conflict with others they come across. When Hashti tells them about Big Eye's death, there is a lot of disgust over the funeral rites but she has learned to accept it. What did you expect her to do? Hashti asks the group. She doesn't use fire and can't hold a shovel. Should she have to let him him rot? Or let wolves chew on her son's liver? Anna and Big Red exchange a pleased glance. As for why Khan would go on to mate with Sabra when a cub had just died, Hashti asks Khan directly. She felt hurt that he did that rather than be with her. Annoyed, he points out that Treewalker and Bunny Pouncer were there with her. And he did leave Sabra to be here with Hashti, and now he is too injured to return, and Sabra will mate with someone else. Big Red smiles at the explanation, saying, Ethics are different when mating comes once a year. I'd rather have Khan than Killer fathering cubs. Maybe, Lael says, but no civilized race eats children's bodies. On the contrary, Big Red says, the Katha find our litany of dust impersonal and uncaring. Lizards, Gay spits. It's no worse than burning, Hashti counters. Gaylord looks at her as if she were a lizard or a tiger. 
but doesn't stop her from telling them how she got back here. This concludes with her ideas about the tigers being interested in travel. Big Red gets excited at the thought, saying the tigers might be a perfect fit for first in. Great on the frontier, not territorial, never homesick, always ready for adventure. He laughs when Lael summarizes them as the perfect gypsy. Anna agrees with him. Now Gaylord speaks up, pointing out that this does nothing for the people left here on New, Be- New Lebanon. Lael picks up the conversation using her knowledge of export clauses. She and the First Inners can continue talking about this later to determine if First In can make a profit by purchasing Swamp City and labor. Big Red then passes leadership over to Gaylord. The meeting ends on a high note. As everyone leaves, Gaylord lingers for a word alone, repeating how terrible he felt when he thought she was dead. Look, I was wrong about the tigers. And wrong about you. You're an impressive lady. I love you. Will you forgive me? He is shocked when Sahashti scoffs at him. The first time I met Khan, you thought I'd hallucinated it. The second time, you intervened with a skunk gun. You tried to bully me out of going to the rock with Ross. You made fun of me in the mess hall when I opposed your plan. Then you threatened to lock me up. You left me no option but the most desperate one, going after the tigers by myself. When I did, you tried to drag me home. Do you really think I'd kiss and make up? Gaylord has had enough chances, and Hashti is done with him. Upset, he tells her to go flirt with sweat for all he cares, and marches off. For a moment, she wants to run after him, but reminds herself that she has a good name, capital N, and that's all she needs. No baggage. As for Hashti's future, New Lebanon won't need a horse trainer anymore, since new machinery is going to be brought in. Much as she loved the horses, they aren't her life after all that's happened, just as she doesn't need her old stuffed animals anymore. They're nothing but leaf eaters after all. And she was hap- she's happy that Khan will-, will go adventuring in the stars, but it hurts her that he hasn't asked her to come along yet. The next day, Hashti asks Big Red and Anna if they will recommend her for first in, and they are thrilled. They will give her two votes, plus Ross's from when he was alive, and Khan's can act as a non-human vote. So she's good to go. They warn her it's not easy. It's hard, dangerous work, Red says, and the decision is irrevocable. You'll find, once you're initiated, that you can't go back to the old life. That being said, both of them want Hashti as a circle mate. That night, the camp celebrates solstice by setting the phoenix nest alight in the center of town. Khan goes with Hashti, which makes people nervous, but they just keep their distance. Gaylord, as the leader, tells everyone when to place their gifts on the nest. These offerings help them have a fresh start. Sweat throws in the bullet that killed Ross. Lance adds the nameplates of the horses who died. Anna's tears suggest she brought a memento of Ross. Gaylord brings out a sweet sap table as a symbol of of the company that they're all leaving behind, and everyone cheers. Lael follows with a pile of contracts. As the sun sets, Gaylord leaves his personal grievances aside and asks Hashti to light the nest as the one who brought them hope. She does, and the bonfire is over 20 feet high. Khan stands firm, but trembles at her side at the sight of it. They drink and give toasts until the fire burns down. Then Gaylord fishes out the elaborately decorated egg. Khan is invited to break it and outpour candy and presents. He adds his roar to the cheers. Lance gives out the presents and is shocked when he receives his own, Hashti's old guild ring. At the same time, Big Red and Anna give Ross's gold first-in earring to her, welcoming her into the circle. Khan sniffs at the gift. What is that? It flashes like fire. 
I dislike fire, but I suppose I must get used to it if I travel on the burning rock. You seem to like fire. Will you come with me? I tell much better stories than your horses. I will go with you, beaver teacher. The end. Now that we have finished the book, let's play my favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? To be clear, the point of this game is not to mock anyone. I've heard that it wasn't uncommon back in the day for artists to get pretty vague descriptions of what they were meant to be painting. Uh, For example, if you're told to paint an alien monster with three eyes attacking an astronaut, do you spend your time reading the book to learn more, or do you do the best you can with that short description so the bills can be paid? (laughs) Sometimes we're spoiled with covers from people like Michael Whalen, whose Dragon Dragon Riders of Pern covers are some of my favorites for accuracy, uh, and a lot of times you don't. Uh, The reason we do this part at the end of the episode is to avoid any spoilers, since covers sometimes show big plot moments. Uh, That's true of Forest of the Night. The cover depicts the moment when Hashi comes face-to-face with Khan for the first time, and he and she bops him on the nose. Uh, what it doesn't capture is Khan's distinct black face markings. Hashi is also dressed in a generic, futuristic jumpsuit rather than uh, frontiersman's clothes. Uh, the forest around them is more of an exotic jungle and doesn't look like, you know, snow is about to start falling. Um... All this together tells me that Barclay Shaw didn't have a chance to read the whole story. He was probably given a prompt like this. A woman with dark hair has fallen on the ground while a feathered tiger stands over her in the middle of a forest. Going by that, I'd say he got pretty close. Before we end things, let's read the back of the book. The Lady and the Tiger. The first in-team had promised New Lebanon's loggers that the planet's tiger-like predators were gone. But it was a tiger that stood over Hashti in the woods, pawing her and uttering an eerie, song-like cry. Panicked, the horse trainer hit her assailant. He snorted in surprise and fled. The tiger's call haunted Hashti. The first inners heard mystery in the alien song. The loggers heard danger. Hashti's lover heard profit, and the loggers agreed. The unusual feathered tiger pelts represented a way to buy themselves out of lifelong debt to Old Earth Company. But Hashti and the First Inners had begun to believe that the tigers might be intelligent beings. Someone had to learn the truth before the colonists' terror led to wide-scale massacre. So Hashti set out into the forest, alone, to learn the ways of the tigers. <laughs> uh, what did you think about Forest of the Night? Is it a good title? Does the summary on the back of the book do it justice? Let me know down below uh, if you're on YouTube. I really enjoyed it. This is my third time reading it. I wish Stussy had published more sci-fi books because I really like the way she explores sentient intelligence. Uh, Both her novels are all about human misconceptions about intelligence, how we can be narrow-minded about what intelligence is for. In Forest of the Night, the tiger's physical strength and prejudice against hill beavers who live in lodges seems like it would overwhelm the colonists if something didn't change. In Dreams of Dawn, it's the other way around, since the colonists on a different world don't realize that their crops and food are poisoning the local sentient crabs that are uh, that to them are just pests, uh, seriously threatening their survival. Uh, both works are about seeing past and embracing differences while bringing two groups closer together. That's it for this episode. Check out my Instagram at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A-B-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y to see the rest of my collection and let me know what books you are never going to read. 
Are you interested in sci-fi, fantasy, classics, children's books, or covers that stop you in your tracks? I'll try to get to all of them if you like listening to this kind of thing. You can also let me know what you liked and didn't like about this episode so I can improve in the future. Until next time, stay proud, Earthlings.